episode 417 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you still commercial free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, clients, funders, friends, family members, or pets. Joining me on the News Roundup, Megan Stiefel, who's the Chief Strategy Officer for the Institute for Security and Technology. Tatiana Bolton, who's the Policy Director for R Street Institute's Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats Program. And Jamil Jaffer, the Founder and Executive Director of the National Security Institute, and really a hundred other things. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and Chief Provocateur for today's program, which is packed with stories, so we may have to give a few of them a lick and a promise. I wanted to talk about two reports that came out because they're both, I think, landmarks and worth discussing in a little more detail than we ordinarily would. Megan, the Cyber Safety Review Board, which was meant to be a kind of accident report, you know, aviation accident report phenomenon for big cyber disasters, appropriately chose Log4j as the first disaster would write a report on. How did it do? I think the reviews are so far that it did fairly well, keeping in mind, of course, that this review board was established last year through the executive order. Which one was that? I can't remember the number. In any event, that's its provenance. And a 15-member panel issued its report last week. They also convened a meeting around it. And, you know, kind of clearly the outcome is that Log4j has become an endemic vulnerability, which, among other things, means that it's going to stick around for a long time. This is, of course, interesting to me for, among other reasons, that I was at the White House when Heartbleed happened. So here we are, not quite 10 years later, and we're still sort of like shocked and awed when we have problems in open source code that (laughs) present kind of systemic risk to the basically internet ecosystem, but now we're finally doing something about it, we hope. It took the group about five months to issue their report. And of course, this is under the auspices of CISA with Rob Silvers chairing the meeting last week. I think among other interesting things about this is this particular vulnerability was first identified by Alibaba. And there's kind of this, I would say, I think there's still a controversy in the ecosystem. This report did not find evidence that the Chinese use its advanced knowledge to otherwise obtain access or leverage the access in systems. But somebody did, you know, overall, uh, uh, some, somebody, somebody Got, yeah, got, exactly. got advanced word, but they didn't exactly. find any evidence that the because Chinese we, were doing that. Right. Yeah. Yes, we did see folks using the vulnerability before it was publicly disclosed last December. There are 19 recommendations in total. Some of it, I think, is a bit like mom and apple pie, right? The board's conclusions encourage raising the bar for security within the cybersecurity community, especially open source software developers who are, as we all know, under-resourced. Many of them are volunteers. There is not like a pool of funds that keep these volunteers focused on the right thing. And that's not really, you know, bubblegum and duct tape, as we know, is not the best way to keep the internet safe, stable, secure, reliable, interoperable, and all those other priorities for the future. So I, at the same time, I'm, I'm glad to see this group come out. I look forward to kind of seeing how the community reacts to these, and hopefully we'll actually see some community reaction and responses by industry to the recommendations. It's nice to have a canonical statement of the facts that you can reasonably trust. And if they aren't sure about something, they said they weren't sure about something. And this was interesting in part because, yeah, it's endemic, but that is better than being pandemic. And they talked about why Log4j turned out not to be the crisis we all expected, which is interesting, and why it's going to hang around for a long time, which is that it's hard to find. That's why it wasn't such a great tool for exploitation either. I thought the idea... By the way, way, it's interesting that in this year's NDAA, which I know we're going to talk about later, someone has proposed an amendment to review SolarWinds in a similar way that this review board reviewed Log4j. And I wonder whether that's even necessary now that we've got a review board that should be doing this type of work on a regular basis. Yeah, SolarWinds was dominated by Mandiant's willingness to talk about these things. And that's how we know a lot of what we know. I don't think we want this to be a historical board, and it's going to have plenty of crises to deal with in the future. So as with a lot of legislation, this requirement sounded like a great idea a couple of years ago, and it's aging badly. All right, Megan, there was this notion of what I've been calling a KYCB for government code, which is know your code base, that when you sell stuff to the government, you should know what open source you stuck in there and where. And that does sound like a pretty common sense requirement, but it could turn out to be very demanding and pretty expensive for government code purchasers. Well, I guess, but I mean, I still think it's a necessary evil. And so, you know, who should bear the burden of that? It probably shouldn't fall on either party explicitly, but I think there's 
again, back to the whole kind of the rising tide and using the government's ability to make waves to improve the ecosystem overall. So I think it's an important step forward, but I understand the concerns about undue burdens or cost burdens, but I think we still need to nevertheless press forward. All right. Second report. Jamil, the Council on Foreign Relations, of which I've been a more or less useless member for 30 years, has produced a report on cyberspace foreign policy that included contributions by the guy who's likely to be head of the State Department's cyber office. And I thought it was a mixed bag, but on the whole, the dumb stuff was dumb stuff we've seen before, and the good stuff was repudiating dumb stuff that the State Department has been repeating for at least two decades. So yeah, no, sir, I tend to agree with you. I mean, look, uh, Nate Fick, the incoming ambassador for cyberspace, or whatever the exact term is, at the State Department, is a key contributor to this, as are a number of folks that have been around for a long time um, on these issues and have some of whom have been very forward-leaning on the importance of the U.S. taking a different foreign policy and national security approach to the cyber domain. People like Will Hurd, Rick Leggett, Ted Schlein from Kleiner Perkins, Sam Ravage from FDD. So a lot of very serious folks whose views have to be taken seriously, Amy Ziegert from Stan. So look, some of the key recommendations coming out of this report or major findings are, look, the global internet is done. The effort to create a global internet and a sustainable global internet by the U.S. has failed. And part of this is, they argue, uh, is that the U.S. has taken itself out of the game on digital trade because we haven't enacted as comprehensive a data privacy rule as Europe. I tend to think that's exactly wrong. But we can debate whether that's right or yeah, that's, wrong, whether we need the, our own GDPR. I, no, we're not going to debate that. At least I'm not. That's the BS that they have continued to push forward. But the fact that the global internet is dead is way overdue as a recognition and going to have major consequences if it really starts to influence government policy. If we really think the global internet is dead, we should stop acting as though there was a universal obligation to respect global, to ignore boundaries. And now that that industry-fostered view of the world is on its last legs, we can start regulating on a national basis, which is what we're going to have to do. Well, you know, Stuart, I think that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I'm not ready to give up on the global internet yet. But what I know the answer is not. The answer is not to do what the Europeans have done. The Europeans are in significant part are, are responsible for the death of the global internet. It's their adoption of things like GDPR, data localization, and the like, alongside, to be sure, the things that authoritarian regimes like China and Russia and Iran are doing to segment off their own internet. But the Europeans themselves are responsible for this very thing. And the task force's response is, oh, we should do the same thing, but we should just do it in a way that's globalist and hold hands with the Europeans. And then maybe if we just kowtowed enough to the Europeans, then we'd all sing kumbaya and maybe we can get back to a world in which the U.S. leads. Of course, that's the exact opposite. U.S. leadership means leadership, not simply going along with the Europeans. And so I think that part of the, of the task force's report is wrong. But there's a lot to be recommended in the task force's report. Things like noting that cyber attacks that violate sovereignty are below the level of armed attack, which we all knew. But their response to that, which is we need to get tougher and not just talk about norms, but start enforcing norms with actual actions, I think is exactly right and long overdue. We saw some moves towards that in the Trump administration. We saw the Congress provide new authorities to the administration uh, to take more action in the cyber domain. We see a little bit of a walk back of that under the Biden administration, but they haven't gone back nearly to the disastrous Obama policy of, you know, create a Rube Goldberg machinery so it's impossible because of a single operation. So I think there's an opportunity here with this report and with new folks coming in into the administration. And look, you've got folks within the administration who've advocated for this before uh, when there have been different roles, whether it's Ann Newbar or Chris Inglis or Jen Easterly, they've all advocated for a more forward-leaning role. So I think with Nate Fick coming into state, I think we'll see more of this getting more aggressive on the cyber front and really leaning forward to take the fight to the enemy and create that kind of deterrence that we need. I think the task force is right to call for that. So some good and some bad, in my view, in this report. Yeah, we're going to actually do a bonus episode talking to Michael Fisher-Keller about a book he's written with Emily Goldman and Richard Harknett, uh, very influential people in the Cyber Command office on cyber persistence theory and why deterrence doesn't work, but engagement should, that is to say, defending forward. It'll be an interesting discussion about that. But the thing that is aggravating about this that really group with that eminence should not have made such an error on is when they suggest that imitating GDPR in the U.S. and having a privacy law is the key to solving our transatlantic problems. The transatlantic so problems to, that can be- I have to push 
back on the both of you on this GDPR piece. I agree that they are trying to be more interoperable with Europe, right? Recommending a digital privacy policy that's interoperable with Europe, but they're not recommending adopting European standards. Yeah, but they want to... The notion that we can solve our problems with the Court of Justice and with Europe by adopting regulation of our private sector is just whacked. We solved that problem with the first safe harbor. And basically, everybody who wants to subject their uh, business to European rules can just say, fine, I'm applying European rules. And that solves the problem for private industry. The problem that we've had since then has all been about Section 702 and U.S. law regulating not privacy, but national security intelligence collection. And unless somebody has an idea that that's a a fun thing to regulate at the behest of the Europeans, U.S. law won't change anything about the state of tension between Europe and the U.S. And so we have to figure out a way to work with Europe, given that they have some of these requirements for data. So how about this? Once, Once we recognize that national boundaries are going to be relevant, why don't we say we're going to start imposing restrictions on Europeans who want to use our part of the internet if Europe doesn't find a way to work with us. So far, I mean, it's all been a Europe the demandeur uh, and us looking for ways to solve their problem. And we, I don't think we, the goal is to play I don't think the answer is to play tit for tat. You, you hit me, so I hit you back harder. I think that we need to come up with legitimate standards that even private industry right now is clamoring for. Well, the, so some, it, private industry can clamor away and because they want preemption, God bless them. But the idea that it's going to solve our problem problem with Europe. When Europe has consistently, it's not like we're going to hit them back because they hit us. They've been pummeling us for 30 years on this issue because they like it. And until they realize there's a downside, they're going to keep doing it. We need to find a downside. I just think that we do have data transfers and we need to resolve those outstanding issues and come up with, uh, there's an EO that's about to come out that regulates cross-border data flows. And I think those are very critical agreements. There is a tentative agreement right now. Along it, it's with a BS the, agreement because it's an agreement to announce an agreement later. Uh, no one I mean, has really but, figured but that I, out. The point is that we're moving forward in coordination with our allies and partners in a world where we are currently in a fairly competitive stance with an adversary like China. I don't think it behooves us to start a fight with Europe over data transfers with some of our closest allies. Start I think we a need fight. To They've be been fighting to, us for 30 I years. Mean that, I think that we need to coordinate with them, talk to them, find ways around these things. That's what we've been trying to do with our privacy work. Find ways that we can balance things like preemption and private right of action and the requirements that people want from a U.S. perspective. That's that's important. As they say here in Virginia, well, bless your heart. (laughs) <laughs> well, hold on. Well, hold on. Look, Tatiana's making a good point, which is that we need to work with the Europeans and find a path forward on these issues. The problem, Tatiana, is that we have. We've been through this show twice before. We did Privacy Shield. We negotiated a second agreement with them. The problem is the European Court of Justice keeps coming in and interpreting provisions of GDPR differently than what perhaps the writers of GDPR thought they ought to be interpreted, at least the ones who negotiated Privacy Shield with us. Now, there's an easy solution to that. The Europeans could change the law. They're not choosing to do so. That's on them. We have worked with them. The idea that you're suggesting that we haven't worked them, we just need to work harder, is simply not accurate. We've done all well, of that. Well, perhaps I'm question- not saying we need all right, to. I'm going to call. I'm going to call time because we have the biggest roster of cases and stories to get through that we've ever tried to get through, and we're not making as much progress as I would like. So let me just ask Megan to tell us. The House is at work on a defense policy bill, the NDAA, and it's got a bunch of cyber stuff as it has had for the last three or four years. Can you tell us what the highlights of this are and are they going to pass? Well, whether they're going to pass, I think, is not something I'm going to wager any money on. I think they're probably likely to pass, but I defer to my other esteemed guests to weigh in as well. I do think, though, that we are in like the golden age of cyber legislation, I just have to say, which is far from the place where we were 10 years ago. But yes, so the NDAA, 37 billion more than the administration's request in the $839 billion bill. There were a series of 
amendments, including a few things which may be near and dear to Tatiana's heart, especially uh, Congressman Langevin's systemically important entities. How is it that we pronounce that again? Systemically important critical infrastructure, SICKY. SICKY, yes. I thought they changed the name in the bill. They did, yes. Systemically important entities. So now it's SI. That's bad. Um, Better than that, arguably. Siki was not a a God's gift to uh, uh, acronyms. We tried so hard to find a new one, but we just could not figure it out. So this piece in particular requires operators to enact stronger digital security standards and share threat intel with the government, which I overall think is a good thing as I've been sort of continuing to beat the drum, which I'm sure Jamila is going to weigh in on. And I can't wait to hear what he has to say about the scope of regulations that we currently have, especially on reporting and the like. There's also the creation from the Solarium Commission of the Cyber Threat Environment Collaboration Program. I hope there's a better acronym for that. Again, looking at information sharing with CISA, I think as listeners probably remember, I served at the Department of Justice with Jamil. And so I do think we need to like not let information fall into the hands of CISA and die. The information needs to make its way to other parts of the government. And so where these are voluntary measures, I think we probably have a ways to go in terms of getting voluntary actual reports where we need them. We also, of course, then had the enshrining into law, the assistant director's five-year tenure. And then... What's the theory of that? I mean, the director of national intelligence, if I remember right, has a 10-year term. And the uh, FBI director's 10. And the yeah. FBI. So is the idea that this is an, a position that Half-life. ought to be a, above politics, beyond politics. And so in theory, Jen Easterly will last into the next administration, assuming that Biden loses or doesn't run. The theory when we drafted the recommendation was that it would provide continuity and it would elevate the director above partisan politics. Okay. It's a nice try. I'm not sure it worked for the FBI director in recent years, but it creates a kind of presumption. I mean, arguably better than what we have now. Yeah. Okay, Jim, are these things going to get through? Yeah, look, I think NDA, as you all know, is must-pass legislation, and so it'll get through in some form, and it looks like these provisions will likely will get through, although we'll see what uh, what the other House does with it and whether they can find a path forward. Uh, but look, there are some great provisions in here, including the cyber threat and you know collaboration environment, which is a great building uh, piece upon CISA's existing joint cyber defense collaborative. I do think that this, uh, whether you want to call it the SICKI or SI or whatever thing, is an important thing to identify these entities, whether the idea of leveraging more regulation upon them. Many of these are already hot, heavily regulated industries that stands already in the cyber domain, the idea of putting more regulations upon them, you know, we could debate uh, till, till the cows come home. Obviously, I don't think that regulations work in this space. I think what's really interesting is that, you know, we've got this, we've also have a new strategy coming out from the administration that's been reported upon that suggests that the administration is also going to be leaning more forward in that strategy on regulations. We've already seen, as Megan mentioned, the new reporting requirements that Congress worked with the administration to enact. We'll see if those are as effective as they say they will be. I have my own skepticism that we've talked about on this podcast before, but it appears there's some discussion discussion in this reporting about the new strategy that the Biden administration would get more regulatory in nature. I'm not sure that's right. I think the folks that have uh, the pen on some of this stuff, including the National Cyber Director himself, Chris Inglis, and the folks in the White House that are working on this are not necessarily uh, oriented to that direction. They're more oriented to the direction, I think, of bringing industry and government together, working collaboratively together. That's at least what a lot of their own writings, both before and in the administration, have said. So I think there'll be a heavy emphasis on this new idea of a new social contract between industry and government. The question is, whether the government and whether the executive branch will try to carry out that social contract through punitive regulation. If they do, I think it'll be a failure. You don't create new societal contracts through hitting people with a stick. You do it by getting by offering them the carrot, but we'll see how it works. I, I disagree. First, you got to at least show them the stick. And uh, Well, what is the carrot too? I mean, what are the carrots? I mean, we've tried the carrots. carrots. I think we've had this argument before. I, I mean, Tatiana can say we said we tried carrots for as long as she wants. The reality is we've never provided real liability protection. We've never provided real anonymity. We've never provided real regulatory protection. provided faux liability regulatory protection just for the act of sharing, right? Just for the act of engaging in these things, much less the kind of thing that you actually need. What you need to do, in my view, is align industries and motives and incentives and their bottom line, their money-making profit incentive with what the government wants them to do, which is give them information. Instead, at every turn, the government's approach has been, let's hit them with, let's get the lawyers involved. Let's get, let's get more stewards paid. You know, stewards advice to every company is likely to be do as little as possible when you might be hit with a regulatory liability stick. Don't help the government out because you might get punished. That's the wrong approach. It fails every time. It's never been successful, but here we go. We're going to try again. So we'll see how it goes. 
as you also heard a couple of weeks ago, that's not necessarily true anymore. There are plenty of law firms and cyber lawyers that are, in fact, recommending information sharing and coordinating with the government. And like I said, I disagree with you that the liability protection wasn't sufficient. I think many in the private, well, not in the private sector, but many lawyers that I've spoken with who work in this space have said it is legitimate liability protection. People just don't want to use it. And so they haven't. Uh, it is pretty that's an argument for... Perhaps that's an argument that the the liability protections aren't sufficient, but you can't say that they haven't existed and we haven't tried. No, but So the reason we haven't given more, I think we're going the same place, Jamil. The immunity for reporting is pretty modest because nobody's been held liable for reporting in the past. But there is a good reason why there isn't a broader immunity, because if you gave people immunity for screwing up, if they just managed to cough out a report about how they screwed up, you're probably not incentivizing the behavior that you want, which is that they stop screwing up. And it's very hard to draft immunity protections for screw-ups that will not encourage more screw-ups. It's actually not hard to draft it. We actually drafted it. We actually drafted it in the bill that passed the House, the sharing bill in 2011. It was very clear. It said, you're not going to be liable for sharing and for what you do with shared information unless you acted intentionally, right? You acted with some sort of a reckless disregard, right? So you set a high bar and you say to people, the thing we want to incentivize is sharing. If we want to incentivize sharing, you protect them from downstream liability. You don't just give them benefits for sharing. The liability picture, Tatiana, you're talking about is liability picture that doesn't make a difference. And that's why people don't want to share is because the liability picture doesn't amount to hill of beans. So I agree with Stuart that yes, there is a potential for moral hazard and creating the wrong incentives. You've got to guard against that, but we have all sorts of tools in law to guard against that kind of moral hazard, reckless disregard and like. You can set that bar wherever you want. We've never even tried that. So the idea that we've tried it and it's failed is simply false. And by the way, Tatiana, to the extent that people are recommending that industry participants share, it's because they're required to by law. The question is how much and when, and the advice from every lawyer still to this day remains as little as possible, as late as possible. But if that's the advice, how can we say that there are sufficient incentives? Or are you not that's saying that there point. are sufficient incentives? That's my point. You created a regulatory structure where you're threatening them with the so stick. Is, is NSI going to be writing saying, a... I, I, I don't think that's the case. If you want immunity from disclosure, the best way to get immunity, or a way to get immunity, is if you're required to disclose. Then somebody sues you and say, you shouldn't have disclosed. You say, well, fine, but you know I had an obligation to disclose. I think that solves the immunity problem to the extent that you're worried about people fearing liability if they disclose. There is a worry that if they disclose, it will lead to further uh, liability for the about. underlying That's screw-up. That's what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, exactly. But I, I, I think that was a People did not want to disclose when they were disclosing publicly. These are a different set of obligations to disclose to the regulators. And it's already sweeping the administration. Not- everybody from TSA to the SEC, everybody is already doing this. I think the regulatory genie is out of the bottle on this. And I'll bet you 20 bucks that the new strategy encourages more of that. So see me after the calls if you want to take that bet. All right. About 200. Let me let's let's move along. We're going to be re- ruthlessly efficient because we're way behind. There was a interesting story. Well, actually, before I do that one, CISA has filed again talking about enthusiasm for regulation with the FCC saying you really need to do something to force people to do a better job on BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol, which is clearly not secure. There's been a lot of hijacking of people's net traffic. And this has said, this is because the incentives are not properly aligned and the FCC needs to come in and create some incentives for ISPs to do a better job of implementing a relatively expensive security protocol. You know, I think this is, as is the case with liability protection around information sharing, neither information sharing nor BGP protocol insecurities are new and novel issues around cybersecurity risk. I think we can all, if nothing else, agree on those two points. But this one follows the three days prior to the notice that FCC put out, Chairwoman Rosenswall, I can't pronounce her last name. Rosenworcel? I apologize to her. Thank you. Launched an inquiry to reduce cyber risk. So then you have a couple of days later, which also, by the way, 
was a couple days after the invasion of Ukraine, the FCC putting out a notice of inquiry around the insecurities around BGP. So I think everybody sort of roughly knows what BGP is. Stewart's already alluded to route leaks and the like, and the ability to so-called sort of sniff traffic, if you will, or potentially redirect traffic, which poses a pretty significant security risk. So the FCC coming out and with this notice and... I actually think this is an important tool that the government should be leveraging, recalling, of course, that these commissions, which is going to piss off Stuart and Jamil, these commissions are you know, invited, of course, to meetings and invited to do things. They don't have to do things, not surprisingly that they are here. But I think it's, at least if nothing else, it's useful to kind of, as we talked about, kind of wave the stick, even if you're not going to actually use the stick to see if we can get people moving in the same direction. Of course, one of the issues with BGP is that there is a first mover disadvantage and little first mover advantage, meaning if not all of the carriers and ISPs and the like around the world are willing to move in the same direction, the effectiveness of the AT&Ts of the world doing so is not quite a drop in the bucket, but it's a, several rivers in the ocean. And what we need to do is really think about how we can extend the reach of this effort, however, with whatever tools we can globally. So you suggested that it's by invitation because it's not clear that the FCC has jurisdiction over these information services as a practical matter. Well, yes. Uh, and of course, like independent commissions like the FCC, FEC, FERC, and the like, right? Yeah. Um, unlike so, which is squarely within the executive branch, these are independent commissions. In so theory, they although to. they're usually pretty responsive to the yes, administration. Usually they sing in unison, but not always. And have we not kind of crossed that boundary already in the net neutrality debates? At least the side that wanted to regulate for net neutrality has sort of said, yeah, we can regulate these guys. And on the right, there's enthusiasm for regulating a whole bunch of stuff as common carriers that we didn't think of as common carriers before. Are we sure that this is just by invitation? Or is there a plausible theory that the FCC has jurisdiction here? Well, I don't, I mean, it's not clear to me that they, I think they're sort of, as they say, seeking comment on whether regulatory clarity would help network operators prioritize investments in the security of their network. So it seems to me that they there are asserting that they have the authority. I think it's an open question. I don't know that net neutrality is, you know, I sort of hear a rather broad scope in what you just said, Stuart, and I don't think that's what you actually believe. So, no, no, but it may be what the FCC rather? it may be what the FCC yeah. believes today. So, but you know, are they relying on that? Are they relying on the net neutrality provisions or some other aspect of their authorities? Is it kind of thinking about are there kind of some of the other authorities that we know the FCC has that we don't often talk about in thinking about? inviting comments here. Right. And I am thereby confessing that I didn't actually read the entire notice of inquiry because it might just say right up there up front. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, so I, I, Jamil? Well, just real quick, I think Megan is exactly right. And Jen Easterly is right that, look, the BGP situation is atrocious and needs to be addressed. I'm just not sure once again that the idea that the FCC should step in and punch people in the teeth and wave the regulatory stick, you know, in an area where their jurisdiction is highly unclear and weak authority at best is the right approach. I'm surprised that the, the better move for me from CISA's perspective ought to have been right to Congress. CISA admits that the return on investment for industry players isn't clear, right? And as Megan has correctly and cleverly laid out, the economic incentives aren't exactly perfect. You know who can fix that? Congress. They can provide tax and other financial incentives that might encourage providers like AT&T and all these other big players to implement better BGCP security. Why do we always run for the regulatory what stick if? instead of the, okay. the carrot, so maybe the, Jamil, the, the financial hmm. carrot? I don't know. Maybe thirty years of history. Well, 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 but what if we had? What if we had? You know, we have the Universal Service Fund, right? That we yep. use to make upgrades or whatever the heck yep. that thing is called as part of your cell phone bill. But you got it. then if we were to somehow, if it's tax, I mean, but of course, I think there's going to be a limit in this dialogue here, because you're going to say that that asserts that that would assume then that the FCC has authority over some of these providers and therefore has the authority to, you know, require this or establish this fund from which it could make disbursements, I think. But I'm in agreement with you. Let's look for some monies out there. I just don't know how we find those monies aside unless you want to take the tax angle, which also strikes me as... Well, the commission also today. recommended two funds that would support various companies to make these sorts of investments, but we've not been successful in trying to get others, especially those on the Hill, to agree that those funds are necessary. And, 
you know, on the other side, like when you get to the Hill, then the other side of the of the aisle also then argues that the budget matters and we shouldn't create new tax incentives and spend more money or take less into our coffers so that we can support businesses to make improvements that we think they should be making anyway, but there's no incentive to do so. So, you know, it's a tough fight and I've not seen any uptake on the Hill of some of those ideas, even though we have proposed some of those ideas over the course of the last couple of years. Yeah, the, well, part, the sure problem right. here, of I'm course, not, is that yeah. the... Oh, Jim... Now, Jamil, the, the problem with this is that the costs fall on the ISPs if they make the fix, and the costs of insecurity fall on the ISPs' customers. And it makes perfect economic sense to say, why don't we tell the ISPs, all of them, to incur the cost, and they'll have to pass it on to the customers who are getting the benefit? Why is that not a simple and economically efficient approach to regulation? Because wouldn't it be much more economically efficient to simply say, we want to make these investments, we'll give them a benefit for doing so, they'll spend the money, we won't need to pay them to do it, we won't need to force them to do it and force them to pass it on to their customers, right? We simply give them the value. And you know what? There are plenty of people, Tatiana, I think on the Hill who support tax incentives, they just want offsets. We spend so much money frivolously in the US government, we can cut limited amounts give these folks a limited tax incentive, they'll spend the money, problem solved. And yes, Stuart, it is true. At any time, you can regulate somebody and that regulated entity will pass the cost on the consumers. But we are in an era of potentially hyperinflation. I doubt that we want to raise prices further for any core commodity, particularly internet service, increases in cost. It obviously has a disparate effect and it's always negatively associated with spillover effects to the poorest customers. So the idea somehow the right answer is let's make telecom spend more and impose that cost on poorer customers. That seems crazy in a time of inflation. Let's not do that. Telecom companies have entire systems. They actually, like Verizon, for example, has a whole program that provides internet service for a much lower rate to those customers. I'm not saying that we should increase any of those rates or that we should do unfunded mandates. But I'm saying that the funds that we've proposed, and we actually, I was in conversations where we talked about doing a universal service fund type program. They also don't, they, I'm just saying those conversations have not gone anywhere and I've not seen the, a strong uptake on the Hill for those ideas. And where does but the Universal Service because, Fund come from? It comes yes, from raising the cost of, of telephone service. Right. Exactly. All right, I'm exactly. going to stop this like, again. I'm going to exercise. Tatiana, there is a story in Medium about an Immunify flash loan cryptocurrency hack where essentially somebody found a problem in a smart contract, borrowed a billion dollars because it was easy and cost almost nothing, and used the billion dollars to essentially bankrupt a smart contract pool. And the debate is whether that's legal or not. It strikes me that it's probably not legal, but it's probably also not a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So this is an interesting thing that we've gotten into where we are moving from like a web two world to a web three world. And we've got all these new instruments and all of these new ways in which people are buying and selling and using different currencies. And so the question has become whether or not code is law and whether or not you can use existing flaws within that code that are exploitable to your own benefit. I think that this is going to create a whole nother sort of a set of cases that will determine what U.S. law really is. I don't think it's a violation of the CFAA, but... Yeah, and I, don't you think it's a misunderstanding? I, I was around when Larry Lessig wrote his book about West Coast law and East Coast law, and he was not saying code is law and nothing else is. He was saying that code creates a set of defaults and expectations that has as much force as congressional enactments in many circumstances. And that's yeah. clearly true. But I do think the notion here that if you set up a structure and said, this is how money will flow in this structure, and somebody finds an unexpected feature of that and exploits it, it is hard to say they're acting in a fashion that is not authorized by the code. 
Right, because it is written using this distributed ledger technology that creates smart contracts that theoretically are approved by all of the people within an existing ecosystem. And so if you're part of that ecosystem, you have theoretically agreed to all of the code. And given that we have all of these problems with open source software and no code is immune to bugs or problems, the people who have started using these, you know, these sort of blockchain groups and these groups that are trading cryptocurrency and doing flash loans, they've built this sort of tower on top of a, I would argue, a foundation that has flaws, that has cracks in it. And so I think we have to go back and debate the legality of all of this. And through case law, I think we'll have to create the answers to some of these questions. Because right now, I think the example was if someone performed a SQL injection to pull up sensitive database records, that would be now considered illegal. And so I think in this new situation, even if there is some sort of bug that allows you to steal money, stealing of money is still illegal. Legal, So we have to sort of square the circle and figure out even if you're in, uh, you know, a land of smart contracts and blockchain where technically you're all agreeing to everything. I think they're either going to have to get smarter on how to draft those smart contracts with provisions that state clearly that all other laws apply, including, you know, taking this is still considered theft. But, you know, it opens up a lot of different questions and really brings into stark relief the glaring issues with blockchain technologies and flash loans and all of the ways that which we're moving into the future. All right, moving on. <laughs> We've just discovered, according to CNN, a new way in which North Koreans are getting access to U.S. cryptocurrency. They're just getting hired, which is like a twofer. First, they get hired, and then they get to steal the secrets and the money. Megan, what's not to like if you're Kim Jong-un? Well, the fact that the FBI figured it out and cut the one guy off, but <laughs> presumably they have a few others. I do have to, you know, go down, go down the USG again for being proactive about this. I don't, I don't know that they wanted this story to come out, but it did. So, and I, I also kudos I have to offer to CNN for not outing the company or its CEO. Like, you know, they, they say in the article they're using a pseudonym, but in any event, we all know that Kim Jong-un has a penchant and a problem. He has a problem that he doesn't have access to hard currencies, so therefore he likes to use cryptocurrencies and get his hands on them however many ways he might. And we all know the purposes to which he puts those monies, which is to support their nuclear and ballistic weapons program. So, you know, the story goes, as we know now, they've stolen billions of dollars in recent years in crypto exchanges. I was surprised to see the reference to the UN in this article, but um, one of the broader points here to echo or to channel one of your other regular guests, Mr. Nick, or excuse me, Professor Nick, is that crypto is bogus. And among the reasons it's bogus, no offense, Jamil, is that we do not have a strong set of security protocols around it. Setting aside the security of the blockchain, right? We're not talking about blockchain security. We're talking about those who are your third party and other participants in this scheme, whether it's a good scheme or a bad one. So also relevant to this is the issue that was released in May by FBI state and treasury pointing out that there are thieves among us. Oh, crypto community. So please be aware. So um, I, can I, can I stop you there? I, I think you've, yeah. you've talked about all the things that we're doing and the bad guys in North Korea, but what the hell is LinkedIn doing? Why isn't LinkedIn watching this kind of behavior? And why aren't they, why don't they tell me when somebody sends me a message, by the way, this is somebody who might not be who he seems. They've got access to all this data and they shouldn't have to wait for the FBI to serve them with a subpoena or a search warrant to find these guys. I agree with you. I don't think that LinkedIn should be off the hook. I mean, I don't think any of these providers should be off the hook. You know, if you continue to see, as you just said, they have tremendous access, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whomever, they have a tremendous amount of data that they could use to do some more helpful things. And I think there's an opportunity here to be more proactive yeah. on their part to help us spot these things. They are a terrific platform through which we can begin to better educate folks, right? Because nobody can go without their Twitter or their Facebook for a day, God forbid. Right. So why don't we, while we have their eyeballs, teach them that, you know, not, not everybody's your friend. Okay. So when, they the Nigerian prince. when the North Koreans get access to our data and they decide instead of stealing our crypto, they're going to ransom our data. It looks as though at least some of the Russians have developed an approach to extorting funds from their victims that doesn't just involve locking up their data, doesn't just involve threatening to release it, but now is threatening to release it with searchability, a tool, a, a tactic they've borrowed from quasi-respectable organizations like Distributed Denial of Secrets. Megan, this actually sounds like it is potentially a pretty serious development because the best reason not to worry about 
being doxxed by your ransomware guys is they aren't very good at making your data really available. Yes. So we've had this concern about sort of double and triple extortion, which has grown exponentially over the past year or so. So back to our, what are the incentives and what are the risks in disclosures, right? Reputational harm is one of them. And so this convenient move by these ransomware gangs to make their victim data searchable presents yet another risk to companies and victims of ransom. So it's a very curious move by these folks. Talk about, I mean, a field day for the FBI, right? In theory, that gives them, if we can't figure out from a cloud provider who's taking kind of aggressive measures to understand who the victims are that are within the least spaces of their data stores, now the FBI can, rather than having to do IP address, address lookups, can just go to these databases and then call up the companies who are supposedly victims and say, hey, let's talk. But, but those companies, are, those, those companies are, they already know they're victims. So they're not, they're not giving they them do, new, new but information. They're not necessarily, yeah, the FBI no, but they're not necessarily telling the FBI. Yeah. Right, right. So I would say not good news day, as you said. Yeah. And I have to say the FBI and the Justice Department dominance of this area, including demanding access to breach reports, is going to fade. No one thinks that indictments are really moving the needle. And the payoff for telling the FBI is not the same as telling the regulator who has made it mandatory. I think the FBI is fighting gravity as they try to maintain their centrality to cybersecurity issues. Well, we'll see. We'll uh, see. Yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, By the way, that also puts into question one of the recommendations from that CFR report about imposing swifter sanctions or stronger costs. I'm not sure that we even know what those costs are because we've tried indictments and we don't really know how to implement those cyber norms or to hold people accountable. Yeah. Well, and maybe, I, uh, maybe the FBI exactly right. or Cyber Command. The Cyber Command could be DDoSing these searchable sites to deny the impact of the doxing. What was I that, Tatiana, Did you just say I, that I think right? Tatiana, yeah, I think Tatiana's exactly right, that we don't know exactly what the techniques are, what kind of costs we need to impose to walk some of this stuff back. I think you're 100% right on that. And Stuart, I don't think your answer of DDoS is the answer. I mean, it's, you know, we keep talking about DDoS attacks like they're somehow some sophisticated thing. DDoS attacks are like 1980s technology, right? Like if NSA is using DDoS, which by the way is something we trumpeted, Cyber Command had done to the Russians on the Internet Research Agency, it's like 1984 called and wants Matthew Broderick wants his technique back, right? Let's stop Wait a minute, that. D- D- Jamil, s- settle down. That's a canned talking point. If the question is, a ransomware artist has said, I'm going to make your data searchable so you are particularly embarrassed by people searching the data on this site, and the site is always down, you have taken away the weapon. Sure, it's an old 80s technique, and it mostly doesn't work, and it certainly doesn't work against state actors, but to take away the impact of searchable databases of compromised data, why wouldn't it work? The problem, of course, is it's game of whack-a-mole. What was that right? cheating we website, right, that went online and embarrassed a ton of people? So, yeah. it, look, it, Tatiana? Think... What was that cheating website that embarrassed a ton of people? That was very effective. Ashley, Ashley Madison. Um, yes. Ashley yeah, Madison. Yeah, there were some suicides. The Madison there were suicides over well, there. I think the reason why... Stuart, I think yeah. the reason why it doesn't work, right, is you still have access to one site where the data is. They're still going to put it up somewhere else, right? It's going to be a game of whack-a-mole, number one. Number two, as soon as that database is made available, everyone's going to download it and mirror it, right? We just know what's going to happen the second it's out there, right? So I'm not sure that's the way to do it. I think what you've got to do is you've got to get ahead of the disclosure. You've got to punish these folks so aggressively that they think before they act, right? They realize that on the back end of acting, they're gonna get hit so hard, punched so hard in the teeth. This goes back to the old analogy of the bully in the playground. I know we all tell our kids, right? Don't punch the kid in the face. But the truth is the best advice you can give your kid when confronted by a bully is not to tell the teacher, is tell them in front of every other kid on the playground, punch them in the face really hard so they go down. They're never gonna bother you again and now there's any other bully. That's- All right, Jaleel, I get an insight into your, into your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's right. certainly a strategy. Fair, I think that'll work better with Russia than what we're currently doing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I have to confess, I grandparent a little that way. Okay, the antitrust bill. No, we're going to have trouble with this containing you guys, but Senator Warner is apparently going around and either trying to explain or maybe trying to pressure the intelligence community into saying, oh, there's no national security problem with Senator Klobuchar's uh, antitrust bill. She's fixed it with the latest amendment. Jamil, Tatiana, this... Anybody think that Senator Warner is right? 
I'm going to let Tatiana go first because she and I are both quoted in the article and she's right. Okay. I think, um, wow, I just, it said such great vibes over here at the end of the episode. I think that it is not the right thing for Senator Warren to be doing to pressure the ODNI to say anything specifically. I think that if for national security reasons, ODNI should be absolutely independent and should provide their best assessment of what this law would do in reality and how that would impact national security. It is not, I think, smart, no matter what the legislation is to pressure a national security organization to provide a particular perspective based on what you want to hear. So I think, do, do you think uh, that's really what he's doing? I, I mean, I understand the argument, sure. the, the argument that says that we should get unbiased intelligence from DNI, but he wants an assessment of the bill from a national security point of view. And DNI is entitled to have policy views on this that are different from their assessment. Nobody's asking for an intelligence assessment of the bill. They're asking, do you think we have solved the national security problem? And uh, he's entitled to ask for that, but I do think he's misusing his position as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee with enormous authority to uh, kind of ask for something he shouldn't be asking for, which is politicizing the DNI. So I agree with you. I just think it's it's, it's unfair to say he's asking for politicized intelligence. I don't think that's what he's asking. No, I'm not. Okay. And perhaps phrase that poorly. I'm not suggesting that he's trying to politicize intelligence, but I do think it's wrong to pressure the agency to write anything, even from the political leadership of the organization on a policy stance. I think those should also come unvarnished. I just I think there are significant cybersecurity concerns in the bill. I think they do the exact opposite of what we want in cybersecurity, which is incentivizing companies not to improve cybersecurity, but instead creates significant log jams to software upgrades and a sort of proactive security applications that I think is just not where we should go. Regardless of, and I won't speak to the rest of the bill or its goals, all I'm saying is from the cybersecurity standpoint, there's significant concerns, and I don't want to see the bill pass particularly for those reasons. Jamil, I'm going to ask you, instead of talking to this, to talk to the next story, which I think the Washington Post and others thought was going to be the big story of the week. And here we are kind of jamming in it at the end, which is this enormous leak of Uber emails and mostly, frankly, telling us that uh, Uber was an aggressive company that was fighting taxis sometimes by violating local law. Okay, we're not surprised about that. But there was one story that you wanted to talk about, which suggested that Uber also had a kind of a kill switch so that when the European investigators showed up in their office, they could cut off access of the entire office back to their cloud in the United States, which does sound pretty aggressive, although maybe not illegal. Yeah, you know, Stuart, I mean, look, these Uber stories are hardly new. We did have this new tranche of emails and they demonstrate yet more sort of aggressive behavior by Travis Klanick and his crew. But for anybody that's read the book Super Pumped or watched the, I think it's HBO, one of the premium channels has a series on this, might be Hulu, on this, like nothing here is all that new or all that surprising, including the kill switch, frankly. It's a variant on a theme that Travis and his team had engaged in, including diverting cars away from their regulators in San Francisco, almost hilariously. But, you know, again, not clearly actionable, not clearly illegal, but definitely edgy. But look, let's be candid. I mean, look around. You go anywhere in the world, practically, you can order an Uber. They have fundamentally changed the business. And yes, they use some very aggressive tactics. But I don't think there's a single person, at least nobody that I know, that's complaining about the fact of having Lyft and Uber. It's a dramatic improvement. And the other services around the globe, dramatic improvement are old taxi services. We've fundamentally changed the game. I think sometimes this kind of disruptive behavior, even though it might be edgy, you know, it can be can be all right. Look, Travis Kalanick obviously ended up down the wrong road, did a lot of things that were really problematic. He's been pushed out of his own company and they have new leadership and that new leadership is doing things, we hope, the right way. Um, I do want to come back, Stuart, if it's okay, just that antitrust thing for one moment because I agree 100% with Tatiana said. And just to, just to add one little piece on top of that, which is, you know, this idea that we should be, you know, Jen Easterly and the team at CISA have been talking about how we need to have shields up as much as possible and industry and government need to be working together. And here you have a case of where government is going to tell industry if we enact these bills as they stand today, hey, you know what? You need to put your shields down. Let more Chinese and Russian companies into your app stores, into the deep innards of your services. APIs aren't enough. And by the way, it's only a handful, you know, eight or nine US companies that get punched with this regulatory stick. 
in a completely unusual use of antitrust laws. And now what they want and what Senator Klobuchar wants is they want the IC to weigh in and say the exact opposite of what they've been saying for a decade, which is letting China into your systems is a bad idea. And now they want to say, oh, you know, there are no problems you let China in as long as you do it to avoid antitrust liability. Wrong Senator Klobuchar, wrong to ask the IC to do it. Tatiana's 100% right. Yeah, I, I, I don't completely agree. I think that the big Silicon Valley lobbyists on this are milking this thing. And this is a solvable problem. It's a problem that could be drafted around. But the Klobuchar amendment doesn't do that because, unfortunately, there are a bunch of people who said, well, national security is just an excuse to protect the big Silicon Valley platforms. So I'm trying to maintain some neutrality on this, but this is not a reason not to have platform regulation. We could have platform regulation and national security if we were more thoughtful about our national security exemption. But the Democrats who wrote this didn't care enough to write that. That's my view. All right, China. I thought this was interesting just because it's a brand new Utah company using as practically every Utah company does the language skills that Mormons pick up on mission to launch a new company. And this company is basically doing open source research on Chinese quasi-espionage programs like Thousand Talents to find people who might have stolen or might still be stealing data from the companies they worked for in the United States. Jamil, I thought this was a lot of fun and a great use of the surprising volume of Chinese open source data that there is. Yeah, absolutely. I think using these language skill sets is a really clever way and open source information out there in China and in Russia, as it turns out, by this new company, Strider. You know, they've raised a bunch of money from organizations like Data Tribe here in Maryland, Cook Disruptive Technologies, Valor Equity Partners and the like. And they've done a good job. They've identified potential threats or potential points of complementariness between the China's Young Talents Program, the Young Thousand Talents Program, and workers who worked in Oak Ridge. That's a huge problem, of course. American companies that are engaged in work with the Defense Department and the like similarly affected. So I think this is a really smart approach using sort of classic techniques. Go gather the data that's out there already, mine it for information, draw some connections. You know, if you can use AI to enhance it, hallelujah, and go identify some bad guys. And this is just good clean, sort of gumshoe investigative work in an app, in a, in a software application. So a lot of credit to these brothers from Augusta, Maine, who leveraged their religious obligations to build a $200 million um, valued company. Well, three quick ones, fairly quick ones. Jason Schulte, who was the CIA coder and cybersecurity expert, who was responsible for probably the worst breach of the cyber attack tools that the U.S. has seen, certainly one of the top two, has at last been convicted and is going to jail. And he's going to get retried because in the course of investigating him, they found a bunch of child porn on his computer. So he's been convicted twice now of two different sets of violations, and he's going back for a third. The guy's got to be... He's got a serious mental problem, don't you think, Jamil? Well, I mean, I hard to know whether he has a mental problem. What I can certainly say is that even though he had a hung jury the first time and there was a dismissal of a journal and the like, he's now come back and defended himself. Never a good idea. I mean, we even tell lawyers who defend themselves that you have a terrible, you have a terrible client if you're defending yourself. But in this case, Ms. Schulte, not a lawyer, did have a standby lawyer, Sabrina Schroff, who had previously defended him. But it was all for not. He's now he's now subject to potentially 80 years in prison for which, you, as you correctly say, an extremely, extremely damaging leak of government tools. You know, we can debate Snowden and Schulte, but both traitors from my perspective. And so we'll see what he gets sentenced to. But uh, I say good riddance and. And the child porn, obviously, just a whole nother ball of wax. But, you know, there's no room to say anything about people who engage that kind of behavior. I frankly think they should be in jail for life or worse. Yeah. Uh, if he's okay. to those charges, of course. I will say, but yes, it's hard to feel a lot of sympathy for him. This one's, I think this is really interesting. And I can't help seeing a deeply cynical lobbyist hand behind this. Email got caught, and no one has found motivation other than bias for this, sending Republican fundraising emails to people's spam folders at roughly seven or eight times the rate at which it sent 
Democrat fundraising requests or emails, even though no other email provider had anything like that record for the same emails. And Google has really taken heat on the Hill, especially from Republicans, obviously, for what looks like a smoking gun of bias. It was only your first cut. If you said, I don't want to receive this, they'd dump them into your spam folder. But they weren't, one, you got at least one through. And that was true for the Democrats and never true for the Republicans. Google has said, we're going to fix this. And then they've created a, a sort of, it's a burn where you're trying to stop a forest fire and you do a controlled burn in front of it. They have asked the Federal Election Commission whether they can have an exemption from the rules that would otherwise not allow them to have special favors for candidates so that they can bypass their usual spam filters in and putting emails into people's mailboxes. And of course, it gets served up at the FEC as, do you want Google to enable politicians to spam you? And nobody, surprisingly, has wanted to do that. I think Google is doing this in the most cynical way in the hopes of saying, well, we tried to fix it, but then the FEC wouldn't like it and everybody hates you and your spam anyway. So the Republican Party fundraisers should just go die on a fire. That's my guess. Jamil, do you have a sunnier interpretation of this? <laughs> I do have a sunnier interpretation. You know, so look, all of these companies are struggling with content filtering and spam filtering and content moderation. We speak on two sides of our mouth. We want free speech and we want people to do whatever they can and, and allow people to talk as much as they can on Twitter, Facebook, whatever Google apps might be, including Gmail maybe. But we also want you to stop Russian disinformation and misinformation from China and do all these other things. And if you don't do that, we're going to punish you also. And so we're caught, these companies are caught in, a, in between a rock and a hard place. And in this case, it looks like Google is trying to do the right thing, you know, prevent too much political spam or prevent spam generally. Some of it was political. They may have gotten the balance wrong. You know, you know Seward, you could say it's because they hate Republicans or they love Democrats or whatever the thing is. I don't know, right? Maybe that's true. Maybe they got it wrong. But now their answer, you're right, their answer is sort of a kind of a hilarious one, right? Like, okay, we're going to overcorrect. How about FEC? You just let, let us let everything through and people will then get pissed off at you for forcing us to let all the emails through. And they'll be really upset and they'll come back to you and ask for regulation. And then you'll tell us how to do it and we'll do it right. And we'll do it your way and whatever. I'm not sure it's cynical. I actually think it's kind of funny. And uh, it, yes, probably an overcorrection. But look, I get the tough position that we, because we actually want the right answer. The right answer is, content moderation that doesn't suppress political speech, but that kicks the Russians and the Chinese out. How do you do that without getting caught in between a rock and a hard place? I have no idea, but I think that's the thing we want and how we get there. That's the hard question. Yeah. I'm not sure they're caught between a rock and a hard place, but maybe between a rock and a giant pile of money. But uh, it is funny. And, you know, speaking as a Washington person, I kind of have to have a sneaking admiration for the way in which they've tried to change the subject. I don't think it'll work, but, you know, good on them for the effort. Last story, at last, a palate cleanser. A bored Chinese housewife who just totally made up an entire chapter of Russian medieval history and sold it so well on Chinese Wikipedia that everybody was fooled for years. Tatiana, this is a great story. I mean, speaking of things that are hilarious, I mean, this lady, and she later came out and apologized and was like, I will stop doing things like this that really are completely non-helpful, and I'll work conscientiously, and I won't do pointless things anymore, which I just thought was amazing. But yeah, she created something like 200 or something stories that were all interconnected with each other that bypassed Wikipedia's editor's eyes. Because really, what I think this highlights is that Wikipedia doesn't really search for content. They search for plagiarism and for other sort yeah, of violations lack of, support, of their... But she, she had all this support from other Wikipedia articles right. that she'd she written. She created like four different personas, uh, one who she took over from another person and was around for like a decade along with her own email and then others, which were both kind of approving her work and supporting her claims. And in some ways, she worked off of existing information. And apparently the way she started it is that she had nothing to do. She was bored and lonely and sad, which is sad, and was sitting at home and was writing in some article, but didn't have enough information. And so she just was like, well, 
I just thought I'd fill it in just with my own creativity. But she put it on Wikipedia. And she went to a point where some of the articles were translated into other languages, because this is in Chinese. Some of them were translated into English and other languages. So sort of messing with the other ecosystems of Wikipedia. She also got some sort of award for best like contributor. And I mean, the articles were huge. One of them was the length of The Great Gatsby. I mean, the amount of energy and like boredom it would take to create something like this. At some point, you almost got to applaud. Yeah, well, and I guarantee she's now got a job at the Ministry of State Security as part of their (laughs) 75 cent army because that creativity will be harnessed in service of the party. Okay. Yeah, I guess. I mean, against Russia, I guess, because that was the topic. Very interesting. So thanks, Tatiana. Thanks, Jamil. Thanks, Megan. You know, this could have been three hours. Our audience should be happy. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for joining us. If you've got comments, send them to CyberLawPodcast at Steptoe.com. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been Episode 417 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you still commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you.